This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. All right, welcome to another edition of the Conference USA Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Uh, folks, it's bowl season. we got a lot of games to get to today, uh, specifically bowl games for CUSA. Uh, Going to get into some previews about that, give some predictions, and uh, hopefully, you know, help you guys win some money if, uh, if you're the betting type. But uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, I was with me as always, uh, Eric Henry. Happy to talk to you. It's a little early for, for me uh, this morning on the West Coast, but uh, you know what? It's all good. How you doing today? Hey, buddy. I am doing all right. I appreciate the fact that you are able to work around our East Coast schedule. I mean, this is the pretty much the majority of the country works on East Coast time. So I shouldn't really feel too bad about this. I mean, this is God's time zone, despite the fact that Central Time Zone has been referred to as God's time zone by others. Um, but yeah, appreciate you getting up. Uh, I, I know we had a, a, a quick conversation off air about naming rights and kind of some uh some funny uh ones there you know I, I guess i'll throw this at you before we jump into things you know lighthearted note well what are some of your thoughts hot takes on naming rights i mean i don't know how i feel about the crypto you know like i saw the staple center recently became like the cryptocurrency center and it's just like staple center is a staple center you know some names are always going to be the same no, no matter what they change it to but uh yeah how do you feel about uh corporate sponsorship yeah i mean it's a I don't want to say necessary evil because I don't think it's evil. I think that's too strong of a word. I think it's just it's necessary, but also like at the same time, it's not, you know, it's not a huge selling point. So like no one's like, I'm so excited to specifically go to like, uh, I don't know. I'm so excited to support American Airlines and support <laughs> American Airlines Arena. You know what I mean? Like, I think just for the way the human brain works, like whatever the name of like your favorite stadium was at like 13 14 you know like the way like whenever you got like really like you that peak of your sports fandom like i still call the seahawks stadium quest field sometimes and people are like what the hell are you talking about it's been like three other things since <laughs> so uh i mean yeah but also like the money that your favorite team gets from naming rights of their stadium it's probably well worth it <laughs> No, I think you nailed it there in two parts. One, the money is, you know, it, it, we're, we're capitalists, so we're not going to hate on people doing things for financial gain, um, legal things for financial gain. want to emphasize that there, you know, um, although we know that can come to bite you in the behind the old uh, ill-fated Enron field, certainly not the best sponsorship of uh, all time, probably the worst. Um, but the point about your where you say you kind of remember the state in which you were at like 12 or 13 in the city that you live in. It's the Rose Garden. I don't know what Moda Center is. It's the Rose Garden, you know, so I think you hit the nail on the head there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, like pretty much everybody, at least in, you know, common conversation or whatever, still calls it the Rose Garden. Like I, I still call it the Rose Garden. I 
I moved here in 2016 and it was, it had been the Moda center for a couple of years in that time, but uh, yeah. Oh man. It's funny you mentioned Portland. I, for people that don't know, Eric, my day job is in the music scene here and you and I have talked about music a bit over the last few months and kind of the differences in our own taste. Uh, I have a good general sense of the stuff you like. I think you can say the same about me. We talked to Scott Carr about it in our last episode. The other night, I went to the show that I personally thought was a lot of fun. I have known of this band for a long time. They're, they're sort of a, a cult classic type of thing in the hard rock and heavy metal scene. They're a band called Guar, G-W-A-R. Don't Google them until we're done with this segment, Eric. Uh, those who listened to our last episode with, with Scott Carr know you're more of a, a classic hip-hop guy. And I, I have a clip here for you that I just I shot on my phone at uh, at the show. And I'm fascinated to get your reaction to it. The listeners aren't going to hear it because of, of copyright issues. But uh, if you, I, I know I sent it to you if you want to pull that up. And just it's like 30 seconds long. If you want to just watch it and give me your, your thoughts, your feelings, and what, what's going through your head when you, when you see Guar for presumably the first time. Yeah, this is fun. Let's do a little live reaction here. You know, this should be fun. Let's, uh, let's pull it up. Okay, we've got some battle bots here. Um, there is a man, and I can't tell if this is like a Ninja Turtle outfit with some deer antlers on his head. Um, the crowd looks very universally vanilla. Um, let's see what else here is going on here. I mean, listen, you know, musically, Joe, I, I, uh, I, I, I will say this, all right, in all seriousness, I like to think I have an eclectic taste, right? Um, the the heavy metal is a little bit on the further end, like probably only a handful of heavy metal songs that I, that I think, you know, it, it's probably used for working out. Um, sure. But uh, but uh, yeah, that was that was unique. That was in, and I'm not not shading and like this is a shade. It's just it's just a vibe that I, I saw there. I, again, I was trying to figure out the people on stage look like battle bots. Um, can I say BattleBots sure. on this podcast? I I don't know. Is that a offensive term to somebody that I'm not aware of? BattleBots. Oh, well, 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 the old TV show they used to go on the Game Show Network. Oh uh, yeah, I mean yeah, I'm aware of BattleBots. Uh, they they definitely have that vibe. Okay, yeah. I was, I was just wondering if I, if I if I'm allowed to you know yeah I think we can we can say that. Um, yeah, no, it was interesting. I mean, listen, I I will say this <laughs> as we're taping this. Listen, Joe Lonergan has become a good friend of mine over the past four years. So. I would certainly go to a Guar concert with him and just vibe because as long as my buddy Joe is having a good time, that means I'm having a good time. <laughs> I, I can appreciate that. Um, yeah. It's if you feel like going down a YouTube rabbit hole with them, um, listen to their, to their credit, they have, they stumbled upon this, this niche uh, in like 1993, 1994, and and ran with it. They're they're a heavy metal band out of Virginia. However, they perform in some pretty intricate costumes. My coworker described them as what you would imagine it would look like if a spirit Halloween store exploded. <laughs> I'd agree. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, they they have this whole like lore around the characters they play on stage. They say they're aliens and they they're based out of Antarctica and they've come to like destroy the human race. It's it is trippy and they shoot fake blood on the crowd. It's wild. It's, it's very odd, but it's, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. But um, if you were curious what uh, my day job entails, 
most of the time, Eric, it's it's getting to see untraditional music acts like that. And I'm I'm appreciative of the opportunity. <laughs> I'll just transition on this to bring it back to uh, you know, the podcast here. For those of you who follow the UDD Twitter account, if you ever needed a, an inkling as to who was running the Twitter account at which point in time, I think this segment helped you out. <laughs> If you were like, who's on the Twitter trying to antagonize the Lumineers? Probably Joe Lonergan. But... <laughs> Correct. <laughs> uh, all right. So we do have football to talk about. Uh, to start off with, Book Raton Bowl, uh, Western Kentucky versus App State. Um, interested to see how this one plays out for obvious reasons. Uh, the roof claim.com Boca Raton Bowl to be specific at 11 a.m. Eastern on ESPN on December 18th. Uh, so Saturday, what concerns me about this one is App State's run game. Both of their running backs are fantastic. Both Nate Noel and Cameron Peoples average five and a half yards per carry. Chase Bryce, quarterback, graduate transfer, uh, threw 23 touchdowns with 10 interceptions. Their offense only allowed 13 sacks this year, which is well below the national average. I believe it's top 10 of the nation, actually. So this is a very talented offense. It's very evident by just the numbers attached to this offense that this team won 10 games. And WKU's defense has their work cut out for them as a result. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on the linebackers and the interior defensive linemen, especially with Jeremy Darvin and Will Ignat Hurt. I think WKU's defensive backs will be fine as long as they don't lose track of Thomas Hennigan in the red zone. Uh, for App State, Corey Sutton's not going to play. He had surgery too recently to uh, get back on the field in time. And Eric, every time we talk about Bailey Zappi and what's important for the other team to beat him, it constantly comes back to just keep him off the field. And App State definitely has the tools to do that. So uh, for starters, WKU's got to play better in the first quarter than they have all year if they want to you know, come home with a trophy. No, undoubtedly. I mean, this is one I will be covering that game live. Got the daily double. I will be taking a break from the CUSA coverage for a bit. You know, chip in on the Sunbelt side Friday. Got Coastal Carolina as they take on um, Northern Illinois. So that should be a pretty interesting matchup. That's a Friday night game. And then heading directly to Boca Raton Saturday morning for this one. Kickoff is 11 a.m. on ESPN. And I think this is going to be a classic matchup, Joe. Styles make fights. You have App State, as you mentioned, very strong rushing attack. Nate Noel, Cameron Peoples. Almost 2,000 yards combined between the two of them, 18 scores. And Chase Bryce is someone who certainly can use his legs. Not a, He's not certainly a, a, a runner by any stretch of the imagination, but as someone who can use his legs to extend plays. It's kind of, in my mind, Joe, this is the formula that has defeated Western Kentucky throughout the year. Teams that can run the football, but still have efficient passing games. You don't necessarily have to be an army where everything you do is run the football, right? But teams that primarily run the football are going to move the chains, get first downs, and try to essentially, you know, shorten the game. You're only going to have X amount of possessions. And with you, them being, or you being Western Kentucky in this case, not that the tops aren't capable of scoring each possession, but they're going to make sure that, hey, if an App State defense that has performed really well this year. They're 16th in the country, only allowing 19.3 points per game. If they can at least perform up to their average, and, and well, and it's, it's hard to think they're going to hold Western to 19th. Maybe up to their average is is a, a bit strong. But if they can even you know perform somewhat around their average, I'll say, then this game should be App State's to win. Now, when you look at the Western side of things, it was confirmed by Jared McDonald and others um, – I believe Jared had it first. Jared McDowell's of the of the uh, Bowling Green Daily News that Zach Kitley will indeed take the field one last time with his HBU guys, that being Bailey Zappi and the Stearns twins and uh, Ben Ratzliff. So um, good for the for the Hilltoppers that they have 
Zach Kidley in tow. We'll see what happens. But in my mind, I just think it's really going to come down to Western's ability to stop the run, A, to keep points off the board, and B, to give their offense enough chances uh, to be able to put up the 40, 50 points. You know, it's not going to be a game in my mind where they're, they're going to have a ton of possession that's going to be back and forth. I think App State's really going to try to use that ground attack and just, you know, kind of uh, efficiently move the ball, and we'll see what happens. It should be a fun one to watch from Boca. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, I was uh, looking at a tweet from our buddy Joe Broback. Western Kentucky's 8-5 and five this year. They're 19 points away from 12-1 and one in a conference championship. So that just shows how uh, – how small the margin for error for Western Kentucky has been all season. And this game's really no different. West uh, app state is a really balanced team. And especially on offense, like this app state team is like, like it's an old school, like offensive coordinators, like dream team They're They have a really solid offensive line who can win the line of scrimmage when they need to. They, they have two running back. Just the fact that they have two running backs alone who are averaging more than five yards of carry. Like, there's like <laughs> that is like they're the kid on the block who had a PlayStation and a Nintendo growing up like those <laughs> spoiled kids. You know what I mean? Like, that's almost not fair. You know, you, you hit the analogy uh, on the head there with that one. Right. It felt like, you know, someone was only good enough to have one or the other. But when you found that kid who had both, you never want to leave their house. <laughs> exactly. It makes sense that App State. Uh, extended their coach based on the the success that they've had this season. So uh, fascinated to see where this one goes. And I think if it wasn't evident, we're both picking App State to win this game, right? Correct. Okay. And to move it along then to the New Mexico Bowl on ESPN on Saturday at uh, one no, 215, because uh, math. <laughs> um, Fresno State uh, favored in this one, minus 11 and a half. As of Thursday morning when we're taping this, for me, I think if Jake Hayner starts, then Fresno's a lock. Uh, UTEP's got some good things to build on for the way forward, and I think playing close to home for them is cool. If Hayner doesn't start, then I think that definitely helps UTEP make this interesting, but I feel pretty confident in saying Fresno wins this either way. Yeah, you know what? Um, I'm inclined to agree with you. I think in my head, I was trying to find a way that I felt that UTEP could win this game it's not to say that fresno state is head and shoulders better than them but in my opinion joe and you know me i'm a big fan of trends so let's just take a look at the rundown of utep's wins for those who may not be familiar i mean regular listeners should know that utep the majority of their wins have come against teams i'm just looking at it right here joe unfortunately they don't have a win against well i take that back old dominion is now going to be their strongest win of the year the team that is 500 Mexico State, not 500. Bethune-Cookman, FCS. New Mexico, not 500. Southern Miss, under 500. Louisiana Tech, under 500. Rice, under 500. When they had to take on winning teams, UAB, UTSA, FAU, UNT, I think is 500, correct? Yeah, six and six. Um, Boise State, they, they did not win, right? So this will be a really good chance, in my opinion, for Dana Dimmel's club to build some positive momentum going to the offseason. Not that they don't necessarily have it already in the bowl appearance, but this win would be their opportunity. And Joe, I saw a lot of this with FIU in 17, 18, and 19. Really look at their 18 year as an example. I think, gosh, they may have only beaten uh, in the regular season. Off the top of my head, one one team with a winning record maybe um and then they were able to kind of get there into the bahamas bowl and the best win of that season undoubtedly was their win over toledo 
right? And that uh, would have not been would have not been nice to have been some possible momentum going to 19, but we all know what happened there. I think UTEP's kind of similar situation where they're trying to prove, yes, we are a team. Our record says we're seven and five, but we're still trying to show that we can beat a winning team. But um, all that being said, I do think that Fresno State will be too much. I think Jared Kalmus in, in his pregame writing about this uh, kind of said it best in that some teams are, are going to end up just being happy to be there. And I think, unfortunately, UTEP falls into that category for this one. With that, let's talk about the Independence Bowl, BYU and UAB in Shreveport. It's at 3.30 on Saturday on ABC. Uh, BYU, of course, the number 13 in the country. I'm excited to see how this plays out. Uh, as you know, Eric, I've done a lot of research and writing in the buildup to this game myself. At this point, we don't know if Dwayne McBride will play. Would certainly be a big boost to UAB if he did. Uh, they obviously have a pretty deep running back room, so wouldn't be the end of the world. But I know a lot of people would be uh, be excited to see him make make the trip to Shreveport. And speaking of running backs, Eric, if you haven't watched a lot of Tyler Algier this year, he is quite good. <laughs> he might finish this year with the highest rushing total in BYU history if he gets, I think it's like 160 in this game. Uh, and they've had some very good rushing attacks over the last 100 years. So a lot of that credit uh, should go to his offensive line. And the thing that excites me the most here is the amount of, in my opinion, future NFL guys in the trenches right here. I love when battles between linemen are are what dictate the game. Uh, between Colby Ragland on on UAB, UAB's got some got some dogs on their defensive line, and uh, it's it's funny. BYU replaced three different starters last year that all went to the NFL, and like they were even better this year. So that that should show you just the amount of, of talent and, and strength and uh, technique that BYU has on the offensive line. I'm going to pick BYU because I think they have the benefit of momentum. Uh, they they beat five different P5 opponents this year, all from the Pac-12. And uh, they're if they're fully healthy, which I believe they are, then they should have no problem. But it sure would be neat if Bill Clark's team can get this done for the program's second-ever bull win. You know, Joe, whenever I have questions about the musical taste, I just remind myself, you're a former offensive lineman. And it all makes sense. That aside, <laughs> transitioning to this ball game here. No, I, I think there's some really good points you make there as far as BYU. I mean, when you just look from top to bottom, they probably are the stronger team. Not probably, they they are the stronger team, right? But now I think when you look from things from the UAB side of things, it's going to be much like the formula I gave for App State to beat Western Kentucky. Now, those are probably two more evenly matched teams. So I think in this case for UAB, it's going to be more of the essence, more uh, more um, imperative that they can control the ground. So even if Dwayne McBride doesn't go, we have seen Lucius Stanley. We have seen Jermaine Brown Jr. farewell in the run game. And what Jermaine Brown Jr. brings, Joe, is a receiving threat out of the backfield people may not realize. He actually, uh, I want to say he's fifth on that team, maybe fourth on the team in reception, something like 22, 23 grabs, whereas Dwayne McBride, definitely more of the downhill, you know, smash mouth in your face kind of runner, whereas Jermaine Brown Jr. is the uh, elusive guy who can also do some things out of the backfield. But it's really going to come down to can UAB play their brand of football best, right, which is run the football, do not have any turnovers, which when you look at Dylan Hopkins on the year, and I, this is where I have to take on the chin as someone who's been pretty, uh, I don't want to say critical, but I've analyzed offensive coordinator Brian Vincent and the way that he's called games in terms of the boomer bust style of the passing attack overall. Dylan Hopkins, 15 touchdowns, six picks. 
uh, when you throw TJ three, uh, Tyler Johnson, the third's numbers in there, it's two touchdowns, three picks. So 17 touchdowns, nine interceptions, not bad, definitely an improvement from the past few years. And they're going to have to um, limit those turnovers as much as they can to try to beat UAB and defensively. That is going to be a big factor. I know Chris Mole entered the transfer portal. He's one of the better players in all of conference. USA. It was banged up for a majority of this year. You know, they're a former linebacker, now safety uh, and, and now, you know, former uh, <laughs> emphasis on the former, former linebacker and former UAB blazer. Right. So he's no longer with the program. That's a loss that's going to hurt them. So it's going to come down to the guys like Noah Wilder and others, uh, especially the guys on the outside, you know, Dijon Turner and, and, and Starling Thomas to see how they can play. But just all in all, I do think UAB, excuse me, I do think BYU is the better team and uh, they should pick the victory. For a second there, I thought you were going to say something along the lines of anybody knows who mu- that much about BYU football would be into the kind of music you're into. But <laughs> um, uh, yeah, you want to transfer the next bowl game before we get in trouble? <laughs> I, I have, I, I do have one more point to make about. Oh, maybe. okay, yeah, yeah. One yeah. thing I was talking to the guys at Vanquish the Foe about that I think is going to be important for UAB to keep this close is the utilization of the play action and Dylan Hopkins deep ball for as many, you know, mistakes as you rightly pointed out that he's made. He has a really solid deep ball. And you look at the numbers that Garrett Prince and Trey, Trey Shopshire have put up this year. They're both averaging something like 23, 24 yards a catch. And I think that ultimately comes down to them just being finding ways to get open downfield. So I think if BYU's safeties keep that in mind and don't let them get behind them, they'll be fine. But they have that capability, and UAB should remember that they have that in their back pocket if they uh, if they run into some trouble against the Cougars. That's a pretty or a very good point on 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 your part. Um, I just think overall, if they run into some trouble. It, Put you like this. I think we'll know very quickly whether or not UAB has a chance in this game. It's going to be within the first few drives. If they come out and they just look overmatched, then, you know, there's no way in my mind that uh, UAB is going to really be able to play catch up. But if they can keep it close, especially with the first half or so, then we may have a game. Yeah, UAB cannot play the way that they did against uh, Rice earlier this year if they want to have a chance here. Uh, let's talk about the New Orleans Bowl, Marshall and Louisiana at uh, 9.15 Eastern on ESPN, late one. Uh, Cajuns, of course, number 23 in the nation, according to the uh, college football playoff rankings. And this will be Michael DeSormu's first crack at being the head coach of the Cajuns after Billy Napier got the job at Florida. Uh, Under Napier this season, this team won the Sun Belt title, uh, have a lot going for them, uh, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, Another team with a strong offensive line. Uh, they're not going to have Chris Smith at running back. However, they are going to have Montreal Johnson, uh, who's just as solid with the Sunbelt freshman of the year this year. And on the Marshall side, I'm keeping my eye on Grant Wells, who may or may not be dealing with some after effects of an injury that he suffered a few weeks ago. Uh, we know he's had some slip ups in high pressure moments and a lingering injury would certainly compound the pressure of this moment for him. It, what's going to be interesting too is how Marshall's defensive line ends this year. Uh, Again, I said the Cajuns had a really strong offensive line. I I think Marshall's one of the better defensive lines that uh, just in the G5 in general and one of the better defensive lines that Louisiana is going to face all year. So I'm going to be paying attention to that matchup. I'm going to pick the Cajuns, but if Marshall can win this, massive achievement for Charles Huff in his first year at the helm. No, it would be an incredible achievement. You know, Louisiana, one of the top teams, 
in the Sun Belt Conference, winners of the Sun Belt, of course, going 12-1. and one. What Billy Napier built there, certainly a great thing. It's parlayed him into the job at Florida. Um, this is what I think is going to be interesting. I mean, then it's just, you know, uh, sorry, it's got a little sidetracks. It's so impressive. <laughs> Their only loss was against Texas. Outside of that, you know, Louisiana just managed to rattle off win after win after win. So that just, you know, kind of caught me off guard there. But in terms of Louisiana, this is a very interesting thing, Joe, that I think you talk about Marshall's defensive line. I'm going to talk about the Cajuns defensive line led by, or not led by, but one of the anchors, Big Talon Humphrey, all of 6'5", 355 pounds. He's a guy I got a chance to know really well from his time at FIU. Joe, coming out of JUCO, was the number one rated JUCO defensive tackle in the class of 2018. Uh, memory serves me correct. Uh, his time at FIU didn't work out there, but he just got himself, you know, Got the weight under control a little bit. It just seemed to be the right fit. He's playing football. Um, Joe, prototypical, just by that size. I know you can appreciate this as a former lineman. 6'5", 350, that prototy- prototypical uh, nose guard and is going to plug up the run. And that's exactly what he does. And I think that's going to be interesting for Marshall, a team that, as you mentioned, Grant Wells, him looking to kind of avenge last year and his struggles down the stretch. Well, a big part of that is going to be establishing the run game with Rashawn Ali. If they can't do that up front, it's going to be a challenge, especially for a very solid Marshall offensive line, despite the fact that they lost players entering the year, uh, I think that's going to be a, a big factor. It's going to go a long way into deciding who wins this ball game. So all in all, and I also think another thing, there was a report that came out that Charles Huff did have some interest in the Duke job, but uh, decided that the time was not right. Forgive me, um, maybe Joe, as before we close the segment, I will be able to properly attribute who uh, came out with that report. But um, if you know anything about Charles Huff, anything about Marshall, he's he's going to insulate his guys from any of that kind of talk. That is the stereotypical rat poison. Okay, I've got it here from Brett McMurphy. Uh, so I believe that was Brett's report. Uh, direct quote here is Marshall Coach Charles Huff interview for the Duke job last week that went to Mike Elko, but timing wasn't right for Huff, who decided to remain with the thundering herd, sources told, the Action Network. But like I said, those are things that, if you know anything about Charles Huff, we've had him on the podcast. He's going to shut guys like us and Brett McMurphy and whoever else uh, who is outside the walls of that Marshall program out. Uh, but I don't think that would be enough in this case. Give me the Louisiana. In agreement there. On on Charles Huff, one thing I'm curious about, when you say that I, I saw the report that he interviewed for the Duke job, was he offered the job and turned it down? And and that's why they, they went for uh, the former Texas A&M defensive coordinator that they ended up hiring? Or was he just – was he not their number one choice? Does it, does well, it say anywhere? That yeah, that's what I'm actually trying to figure out because it, it the, the context, um, the context leads me to believe that he interviewed, but then decided to pull his name out. Um, but I, I I don't know, so maybe we can come back next week on next week's podcast and uh and clarify that, or we can you know get with our guy Grant Trailer, you know, uh, from mm-hmm. up there in, in uh in Huntington to get that clarified. But yeah, I I don't have a definitive answer on that. Yeah, yeah, uh, and you know with with Huff like. I, I definitely expected him to be there for more than one season. I think I'm in a pretty non-exclusive group of people who expected that. But, you know, at the same time, this guy comes from the coaching tree and was one of the top assistant coaches for arguably the greatest coach of all time. So, you know, unfortunately, that doesn't really speak to someone that's going to stay at the G5 level for for very long, um, at least, you know, until they get there their first P5 opportunity. So I don't know that something, a move like that will likely be coming if Charles Hub keeps up what he's done at Marshall so far. And especially if he wins this game against a, a really good Louisiana team. And uh, 
Last bowl game we're going to talk about for this episode, the Myrtle Beach Bowl on uh, Monday at 2.30 p.m. on ESPN. Kind of weird timing for a bowl. I don't, I don't love that personally, but Tulsa in this one favored by nine and a half heading into it. There's not much about Tulsa that particularly impresses me. They're a fine enough team offensively. They do turn the ball over a lot. Uh, Tulsa is also dealing with a lot of coaching turnover in the moment as their uh, defensive coordinator and several position coaches are, are on their way out. Their, their defensive coordinator is leaving for uh, TCU. Uh, Old Dominion has to be better than they have been defending the run. But I also think Hayden Wolf could have a field day against this Tulsa secondary. That's not great. Uh, this is a chance for, for him to just let a lot of people know what his potential is. And hopefully for them, I think this is going to be just a chance to kind of show how much they've really improved. Everything I've seen from Ricky Ronnie shows that he is uh, very focused on this game. Um, And that's obviously what you want to see out of your, uh, I guess, technically first year head coach since they didn't play in 2020. Uh, Honestly, Eric, Tulsa's the favorite, but I'm, I'm picking Old Dominion for the upset. I feel really good about what the Monarchs have strung together over the last six, seven weeks. Joe, you took the words right out of my mouth. I Here's the thing with Tulsa, right? When you have guys like Davis, Bryn, Shamari Brooks, those are vets. I mean, especially it feels like Shamari Brooks has been at Tulsa since I was at UCF and I graduated six years ago, six, seven years ago. So it uh, feels like he's been there forever. You know, I also can't, there's Josh Johnson on the outside, but Shamari Brooks is a guy who, you know, is a name. Uh, it's definitely going to see, it's going to test that. Um, the ODU defense, um, you know, again, a, a veteran senior, someone who has had thousand yard seasons. I, I want to say pretty much every year, except outside of being a freshman. Uh, so that'd be interesting to keep an eye on. But I am also am taking ODU. I do think that this will be just an opportunity for the national televised, nationally televised audience. Although a weird time, as you mentioned, at two thirty in the afternoon, and I think you know that in that nine fifteen game kind of odd. But nevertheless, Hayden Wolf. I am really excited for the greater, you know, audience of college football who check out that game to get a chance to see that this kid is a stud. He's a great passer. He's someone who really revitalized that offense. We had Harry Minium on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about how the offense really just got jumpstarted under Hayden Wolf. Really excited for uh, more people outside the CUSA audience to see that, but also Blake Watson at running back, another good young running back. We've talked about him at nauseum on this podcast. Someone who was a former kick returner, got his opportunity as the running back. It looked like Elijah Lala Davis was going to be the RB1. And then he and Lala Davis have have um, given ODU a formidable one-two punch. But definitely Blake Watson um, carrying the majority of the, of the uh, rushing load there. And then last but not least, Joe, a name that I think most people should be familiar with in the CUSA space but in case you're not, I think um, the conference would say audience, but also a wider audience would get familiar with Zach Koontz, the former Penn State transfer, former Penn State Navy line, four-star prospect when he signed with Penn State. He, you know, undoubtedly in my mind, the top tight end in Conference USA, 71 grabs for just a shade under 700 yards. He's a guy who, for fans who may not have seen ODU play, yes, he is a tight end in name, but they're going to line him up all over the field. I had a chance to see when he played against FIU, they'll line him up out at receiver. They'll line him up in the slot. So look for him and Ali Jennings III to form uh, a really good you know, duo there in the receiving game. And yeah, like you, I- I'm taking note of you. I think this is their coming out party. They get a chance to show in, na- uh, in front of a nationally televised audience. It's going to be a great environment for guys like Isaac Weaver and you know some of those veterans who've been there. I and mean, Isaac Weaver's been there since 2015, right? So great for him to close out his career on ESPN with a bowl game. And I do think ODU will win. Uh, here, here's one thing I think that is, is also going against Tulsa. 
for the Monarchs, Norfolk to Myrtle Beach, it's a five and a half hour drive, uh, and I'm I'm assuming the team themselves flew, although I, I don't I don't know that for a fact, but that's like maybe an hour long flight. And then for Tulsa, obviously coming all the way from Oklahoma, significantly longer travel schedule. Like how much how much do you think that really factors in uh, to some of these teams when they play these bowl games far away from home, Eric? No, I do think it's interesting. Um, you know, I look at, I mean, I guess of the games I've covered because I've been with UDD, I'll use the FIU ones, the Bahamas Bowl. You know, that was kind of a, I guess you could call it a wash, although Toledo having to get the, to the Bahamas is much easier than getting from Miami to the Bahamas, which is, you know, that's basically just a, an hour and change trip. And then you look at the, um, oh, come on, Camellia Bowl, which Arkansas State, you know, that is a hop, skip, and a jump for them to get from. Uh, Jonesboro, Arkansas, over to Montgomery, Alabama. I do think, you know, Joe, I, I here's the thing. I don't necessarily think in terms of travel, if it were just a one-day deal, I would buy more into that. But because it's the entire week, I tend to look at more of the teams that are able to keep, and I'm going to sound like Charles Huff, I'm a soccer coach, but the teams that are, A, able to keep focus throughout the week with the intensity of the events that happen, right? Especially in the Bahamas, uh, Joe, you have it, it, that one, for example, it is truly a festive environment. It's truly a party. The team that can you know, look at it, enjoy the trip, but also keep it in a business-like environment, I think that'll help them. I mean, I'm looking at you know the games I'm covering for UDD uh, Friday, Saturday, the Cure Bowl in Orlando, and then the deal in Boca. And both weeks, just getting taking a look at the media itinerary, both weeks were filled with events. I mean, Disney and you know things on the beach, this and the other. So I think it's more so that than necessarily the trip to the bowl game, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I think with some of these bowl games like (laughs) i for some of the smaller ones i think the teams that put them together do a really nice job of trying to find stuff for fans to do and try to make it fun for the players i definitely think there are are better (laughs) some do it better than others is what i'm trying to say (laughs) um and like you know eric i don't know if you take a look at like some of the, the like swag bags that some of these players get from uh these bowl games uh, sometimes they list like the inventory online i'm not going to say which bowl game it was but uh, you know it's easy to look up one of the bowl games gave players like one of those like white panel footballs that you get for autographs and i was just like why on earth would that i mean i don't know i mean i guess like a souvenir is one thing i feel like Sometimes some of those things are put together very last minute, whereas others are put together very intentionally and, and, you know, strategically so that players will show off whatever the like big ticket item is for for the, the sponsor of the bowl game. You know what I mean? Is it strategically, Joe, or is it money talks BS walks? Because I, I know I've seen the swag bags and again, I won't name the bowl game, but a certain uh, bowl game gave away PS4s. Sure. Um and then a certain bowl game gives away things like that, right? So uh, is, is is it that more the issue, or is it just like, hey, we're just throwing this stuff last last minute. We'll give them some uh, uh we'll give them a, a great lunch with Wendy's and McDonald's and Burger King. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I you said that, and I flashed back to when Clemson won the title, and they went to the White House, and they had Big Macs. <laughs> that, uh, that's and... exactly that. That's called synergy, sir. That's what's uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's just that's just, just such a funny visual. Like the they brought out like the fine china and and whatnot to serve like quarter pounders and and like that was uh, 
top tier moment in college football history. Um, but you're right. Some of these sponsors for these bowl games just have more money, but at the same time, I don't know, get creative. You know what I mean? Like it, tropical smoothie cafe, give them a giant bag of granola. I don't know. Like do something fun at least. <laughs> Sorry. I had, to hold I, the, I, I had to hold it to laugh. If I get a giant bag of granola play the bowl game, me and you go have an issue. That's all I got to say. It's better than an autograph football. What am I going to do? Like, hey, man, you want to give me your autograph? It's like, <laughs> Joe, what about my, my flipping 65? Why I want a giant bag of granola? Hey, don't, don't hate on granola. I don't know. You put it in, the, put it in yogurt and put it in there with, with some chocolate chips and some honey. It's good. Shout out Tropical Smoothie Cafe. <laughs> oh, man. All right, Joe. Oh, oh man. All right. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, so FIU, uh, they had the big addition with Scott Carr uh, earlier in the week. And then shortly after, they brought in a former uh, Memphis defensive coordinator, former uh, San Jose State head coach, former University of Colorado head coach, uh, Mike McIntyre. Uh, he will be uh, the new guy uh, starting in the uh, 2022 season for the Panthers. Ultimately, Eric, I like this hire. He was a coach of the year uh, a few times. Um, when he was with Colorado, uh, was fired as the, the Colorado coach after the 2018 season, um, and then was a defensive coordinator at Ole Miss, uh, as well as Memphis between then and now. Um, high energy guy, as you can attest, you were at his uh, opening press conference. And ultimately, seems like he is a coach that knows how to build relationships with players. And we saw the the quote that FIU put out from former Colorado running back and, and current Miami Dolphins running back, Philip Lindsay, and talking about how, you know, he helped him develop as a player and a person. And I, I think that's a great place to be for coaches. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I'm working on an article about it that's taking me forever to, to finish, but I basically believe there's a Venn diagram of being, you know, a good leader, uh, a good person and a good X's and O's mind of where, every college football coach lands and the closer you are to the middle of that Venn diagram, that's where the truly great ones are. And I, I think Mike McIntyre's, you know, I, on paper, I think he has a lot of the, you know, the non-tangibles that you need to be a really good head coach. Now I think he obviously hasn't really had the, the opportunity to really do something extremely impressive outside of, you know, the, a couple good years there with Colorado and San Jose state, but uh, you know, it, for a program in transition like FIU, I think this is a, a solid enough hire. Yeah, Joe. So let's talk a little bit. And you mentioned his time at San Jose State and his time at Colorado. In fact, he's a high energy guy. I think, and we talked about this with Scott Carr a little bit. When you look at his record, his record is 46 and 65. So it's 19 games under 500. But with that being said, you do have to take a look into the the jobs that he was taking over at the time, San Jose State had not made a bowl game, uh, believe it was something like nine or 10 years, hadn't it? And, and the 10 win year that he led them to in 2012, they had 11 wins overall, but he didn't coach the bowl game. That was most on wins they'd had in something like 17 or 18 years. So it uh, goes to show you in terms of rebuilding, he's able to get the job done there. And I think there's a lot of similarities, Joe, between the San Jose State job and FIU in terms of being, and he talked about it in his, in his, press conference and talked about it when we had a chance to get one-on-ones with him the similarities between the bay area and miami in terms of a very wide array of you know diverse 
backgrounds of people, obviously South Florida, uh, very heavily Hispanic, but also um, um, diverse overall. Uh, you look at the Bay Area, just diverse in general, whether it's an Asian population, Hispanic and others. And then San Jose State being one of the few universities in the nation that, I mean, I, I believe their Asian population is something over like 30 something percent, right? So it, it's a lot of similarities between that and FIU in terms of kind of building that football culture and giving students and fans and alumni alike a reason to come out to ball games. And while they got wins on the field, you know, their actual attendance, that was something that um, had a chance to take a look at it. And it still kind of hovered somewhere around that 13, 14,000 mark, which to be quite frankly, if and I did not get a chance to see, I mean, I obviously, you know, wasn't covering San Jose State football, then I don't know if that was just your butts and seats or if that was your paid attendance. If that was butts and seats, that would be a drastic jump for FIU, right? So that would be huge. Then he transferred to his time at Colorado. And again, Colorado's a team that, whether it was the Big 12 or in the Pac-12, pretty much have been bottom of the barrel, you know, bottom of the, uh, of the pack. So the fact that, no pun intended, so the fact that he got them to 10 wins and they won their, their division was, you know, really a feat. But with that being said, it was the only winning season he had there, I believe, in the five um, or six seasons, I believe you had at Colorado. So you have to take that into account. But again, that's why I said it, it's been a lot of rebuilding jobs. That kind of counts for his under 500 record. A lot of FIU fans were down on the higher initially because as I, again, as I, uh, those of you who heard my roots or our interview, I should say with Scott Carr, I asked him how hard was it to turn down some candidates who either had FIU ties or South Florida ties. Joe, I do want your thoughts on this. And I know, you know, after that, maybe you'll, you'll have a chance to toss the sound of Mike McIntyre getting the, getting the Graham Center fired up there at FIU. But I do want to get your thoughts on this, right? The the feeling was that in South Florida, with it being arguably, and if you ask some people, it ain't arguable, the number one recruiting territory in the entire nation. Did you need someone who can instantaneously carry respect, whose name instantaneously carries weight in South Florida, be able to walk into high school homes and have relationships, right? Mike McIntyre, someone who... Well, the, the tagline was welcome home. He was born in Miami, but he, he spent three years there. You know, he left well before uh, elementary school. He, he's a native of Nashville and doesn't have any ties to South Florida. Joe, when you look at names, you know, a name I know you're familiar with from you know our time on this podcast is Tim Harris Jr., who's the offensive coordinator at UCF. Um, for those who may not know, Tim Harris was a is the son of Tim Ice Harris legendary high school coach here in South Florida. And Tim Harris himself had a chance to take over and win a state championship as a head coach of Booker T. Washington High. Is still known as one of the top recruiters of South Florida in the nation. When you look at a Frank Ponce, Appalachian State offensive coordinator who spent time on Mario Cristobal's staff at FIU um, and is a native of Miami, also was a Miami-Dade County High School uh, head coach. You look at guys like James Coley, another Miami native, offensive coordinator of the Hurricanes. Spent some time with the Dolphins, also another Miami native. Um, when you look at guys like that, that, Joe, and this isn't necessarily to say the higher coach Mac was wrong. As I said uh, when we talked to Scott, time will tell. But I'm just curious in your mind, given the dynamics of South Florida, the recruiting, in your mind, do you think that's important to, to have a, necessarily a head coach and someone who can walk in immediately and build those relationships? Or do you think, you know, hey, that's something that can be cultivated no matter who's your head coach? You know, I think – one of those things that is very important to a successful head coach is being able to strike up those relationships with people regardless of background. And I, I don't honestly know if Mike McIntyre has that ability. I don't think multiple institutions would have hired him as a, as a head coach if he didn't have 
something in that vein. But, you know, you mentioned Tim Harris. That is that would have been a, a cool hire for them. I think we're definitely seeing this trend nationwide in college football, bringing in these young guys who, um, you know, these I, I think for one of the things that we are absolutely seeing in college football right now is bringing in either younger coaches or young at heart coaches who are able to relate to their players in a way that, I mean, you know, some of these, these older baby boomer coaches for lack of a better term simply aren't, that doesn't mean they're bad coaches or that they're not going to be able to, you know, build those relationships, but it's, it's definitely something that, you know, the, the stats and the money show us is extremely important to recruits. And I don't, I don't blame them for that. So bringing in somebody younger with those Miami ties that you mentioned definitely would have been, I think that also would have been a step in the step in the right direction. I don't think that makes Mike McIntyre a bad hire. I think we're just going to have to wait and see how he uses this opportunity to start, you know, putting himself out there in the community, but seems like a very sociable guy. It's just going to be a matter of like, can he get these South Florida recruits to perform the way that he needs them to on the field? No, no doubt about it. And as I mentioned, we do have some sound from Mike McIntyre's uh, presser. I will let you guys hear how he greeted the FIU community. Hey! Are y'all ready for some football? Simple as that. So the FIU community, <laughs> FIU fans, uh, if you aren't ready before, that was how he greeted in the middle of the, uh, the middle of the Graham Center, which is FIU Student Union. So definitely someone who didn't need a mic to let people know. Uh, a lot of energy, a lot of excitement coming out of FIU right now, or at least from Mike McIntyre, Scott Carr, and Mark Rosenberg. Listen, I I like that kind of enthusiasm in a head coach. I really do. But if I am, you know, at FIU for, I don't know, if I'm just in that building for lunch or for another meeting or something like that, and I hear some, and I hear that voice just screaming with no context, I am... <laughs> I'm terrified. I don't know what's about to happen, but Hey, you know what? I I think for, for Mike McIntyre, bring that energy into, you know, into work and have that big booming voice, you know, carry across the practice fields. I wouldn't, if I'm a student at FIU going in for morning classes, not something I I really want to hear in the convocation center at, you know, eight 30 in the morning, but that's just me. But I'm happy that people are excited about FIU football again. Hey, Mike McIntyre has to build the culture somehow, right? So I, if it takes him just playing that on repeat throughout various hallways of FIU uh, to get people out to ball games, maybe that's what it takes. But uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah, we will. But yeah, I think one of the bigger things that that we want to talk about um, before we before we wrap up, Eric, was uh, one of the bigger developments in non Power Five football in some time, and that's number one overall recruit. Going to Jackson State, uh, that's, of course, Travis Hunter, <laughs> flipped from Florida State on signing day uh, in favor of going to play for uh, a, a Jackson State program that went 11-1 and this year under head coach Deion Sanders. And, I mean, I was not expecting it. I'm very happy to see it because, ultimately, I think, Erica, as you can attest, there's definitely a power shift occurring in college football, you know, partially because of NIL, partially because of, I don't know. I think there's just a shift in, in priorities for sure about uh, what kids want out of a college experience, you know, but at the end of the day, Jackson state gets a, a big physical corner, six, one, one sixty five uh, out of Suwanee, Georgia. When you look at like the two, four, seven sports composite was like 
a point nine 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 nine. So like almost a perfect score. <laughs> and man, I am I've watched a little bit of this kid's high school film. Um, to be honest, I, I don't typically pay too much attention to the very highly ranked recruits in the past because I knew they weren't going to go to a G5 or FCS school. But uh, sounds like I'm going to have to shift my uh, my philosophy in terms of my research a little bit now, Eric. <laughs> I think, listen, I think this is a great thing for college football. I think it's a great thing just in general for the players in my mind, Joe. And there's two major points that I want to hit on here. One, right? A lot of people are talking about NIL and the factor, you know, what factor may have played in this decision. Joe, when we talked about NIL in the Conference USA space, maybe erroneously, we spent a lot of time talking about it in terms of markets, right? And saying Miami, San Antonio, Charlotte, others. And maybe, maybe we were too quick to ride off the creative ways that you can use NIL, right? No one's going to confuse Jackson, Mississippi with a Miami, a, you know, I guess if you want to use Boca Raton to South Florida, a Charlotte, a Nashville. But this is where I think it gets very interesting. And I don't know how well-versed our audience may be in HBCUs, but Jackson State is one of the legacy of uh, just like, in, you know, if you were to say, I don't know, Joe, if you were to say, um, I can, I, I'll use Florida, for example, the University of Florida, right, certainly has name, you know, prestige and recognition just in terms of um, alumni and academics and others. Jackson State is, is in that stratosphere in terms of HBCUs. A long lineage, not just of athletics, but HBCU graduates and alumni come from Jackson State. They have found a way. Yes, a huge part of that is the fact that Deion Sanders is the head coach, right? And that's going to bring me to point two, but I'll finish point one first. If you have a strong alumni base where you can build up an NIL plan, I could see this being a formula, Joe, for many schools, especially group of five schools in the future. Not saying they're going to be able to land a Travis Hunter, but this could be a way that they can formulate an NIL strategy that they can land their own four star or a handful of three stars or a handful of four stars, right? To really enhance recruiting. I think it's interesting. Again, it's not as if when you look at HBCUs, it's not as if he, you know, Travis Hunter is going to an HBCU in Atlanta or going to Texas Southern in Houston. It's going to Jackson, Mississippi. Again, don't want to downplay the fact that Deion Sanders is there. Obviously a big part of it, but that just really sticks with me. The second observation, as I mentioned, I want to look at Tennessee State as an example, Joe. I, I'm sure you're familiar with this, that Tennessee State made the decision to hire Eddie George, almost said Pro Football Hall of Famer, but I know he's a College Football Hall of Famer. And Eddie George is someone who didn't have any real coaching experience, uh, memory serves me correct. But this is where maybe, just maybe, if you're a smaller school, and I mean small, I mean, you know, relatively speaking, of course, you know, um, maybe you hinge yourself to someone. I'm not saying you go out and you just start hiring people with no coaching experience that like, I'm not saying you can do it that way. And if you look at Eddie George and Deion Sanders, they've surrounded themselves with a litany of coaches on their roster who are supporting them in many ways. Right. But maybe you find someone who is out there who may have some interest in coaching, but isn't Joe, they don't come from the stereotypical, you work your way up from a GA and you have 15, 20 years of experience and then you do it this way. 
Um, Dion is proving that there may be another way, right, Joe? And we see this all the time. Let's use Anthony Hardaway, you know, Penny Hardaway in college basketball, Memphis. Penny had experience at the middle school level, and then I believe the high school level. Um, I'll let people Google how Penny, Penny Hardaway got into coaching. It was through a death of a friend um, that motivated him. And, of course, he's a legendary name in, in basketball and, of course, in the Memphis area. It, it just it really stuck with me that Jackson State chose to go outside the box with Dion, and it's working. And I think it's showing that you can be out of the box. Again, if you're Florida State, you can choose whoever you want, right? So you don't really fall in this category. But if you're a smaller school, why not take a chance? Because you see what the, 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 you know, the dividends is paid off for Jackson State. And last but not least, I do want to give credit to Dion, the person, Dion, the coach. I'm not here to talk about, not in a position to talk about him in terms of X's and O's, right? But Joe, we're taping this on December 16th, the same morning that we learned that Urban Meyer was dismissed. Uh, as head coach at Jacksonville Jaguars. And no one's going to doubt Urban Meyer's ability to coach X's and O's, but his ability to strike and maintain relationships uh, in terms of an authentic, meaningful level is one that you can question for many years. And I think with Deion Sanders, what you're seeing is that he's authentic. You may not like the way Deion does things, but for better or worse, in this case, better, he's real and he's authentic. And those things are showing. Uh, I don't care, Joe, whether you have the greatest NIL deal whether you're you know, a Hall of Fame player, I do think there has to be some level of getting in a room with players and them finding you authentic that allows for this to happen. Because if Travis Hunter didn't believe in Deion Sanders and, and his family didn't believe in Deion Sanders, I don't think he ends up here. So I think it's a, it's a combination of all three of those things. And to kind of bring it back around, I'll be very interested to see how this kind of plays out in the coming years across the FCS, the HBCU, and the G5 landscape to see Maybe there's an outside the box way of looking at things and may yield some success. I'll, I'll personally uh, question Urban Meyer's abilities on uh, the X's and O's side of things uh, till the cows come home. But that's the topic of another uh, podcast. Um, but you make a lot of great points in regards to uh, what this means for the yes, landscape. One thing I think is interesting when you talk about market size and how we maybe didn't maybe necessarily have the right approach to thinking about that. Um, when when NIL first kind of started coming on the table, and you know, I think you're right because this this started coming on the table uh, pre-COVID, and I think this statement was was true pre-COVID, but I think a lot of people have made or a lot of people have have realized the extent to which it is true as a result of COVID. You don't need to be in a big city to do what you want to do in life because the internet's a thing, right? Like. I think if you if you just look at the population trends in the U.S., more and more people are moving outside of, of cities to in favor of you know less populated areas because it's less stressful. It's you can still you know have the the social life you want, especially in a you know a, a, a town like Jackson, where you know depending on what you're into, there's there's stuff to do, there's great places to eat, it's a great culture. And I'm sure there are plenty, you know, mid-sized cities around the U.S. that are, are similar in that regard. Um, but because the Internet's a thing, you can become famous if that's what you want to do, you know, just by being good at what you do and then having the right strategy of distributing, you know, your, your content or, or whatever you want to call it, of just getting your name out there. So, you know, places like Jackson, Mississippi, and, you know, I think you can throw a, a lot of other kind of mid-sized markets in there those are kind of the future, right? For some of these kids who, you know, just 
want to play football and, and play for a coach, like you said, who they feel has their best interest at heart. And with Deion Sanders, for, for some of the younger folks out there, uh, Deion Sanders had a, a lengthy career in this sport prior to, to being a head coach. And over the course of following him, I'm not going to say I agree with every viewpoint that he has on life. But that being said, I think he's very much proven himself to be effective and to be built for this kind of position. He's very good. He's very good at building relationships. He's very, he's also very savvy about what the lifestyle of a high level athlete entails. You know, obviously he was a a phenomenal football and baseball player uh, at Florida state um, played in, in major league baseball and, uh, football as well you know i'm sh- i'm sure if you ask him he probably could have gone pro in, in another in another sport or two as well but if you go back and look at some of the stuff that uh jackson state's pr as well as various other media outlets sanders is very good at it's just being open and, and honest with his kids about what to expect out of life not just as a high level athlete but just as a, a young person and you know i i think it's i think that's essential for you know, I, I just got done talking about why it's, you know, uh, we're seeing this trend of, of young and young at heart coaches. I think Deion Sander falls into the latter category, but I think his his perspective is valuable for a lot of these young men. So that's why some of these guys are, are you know, chomping at the bit to play for him. With NIL, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's not necessarily good or evil. Um, I think someone tweeted about that. I can't take credit for that, uh, that quip, but I think it's going to give, you know, it's just, it's going to open up more opportunities for kids. Some, some kids are not going to, you know, use the opportunity properly. Some are, and I think it's too early to tell with Travis Hunter, but you know, I, I like to think and be optimistic that, you know, he'll, he'll put that money to get use and, and be smart about it, you know? And then lastly, the thing that just really annoyed me personally about this whole thing was the amount of, of people basically just you know trashing this kid for making this decision because at the end of the day he thought it would make him happier and serve his you know development as as an athlete and as a person better than some of these bigger schools would and (laughs) eric for a country built on the principles of life liberty and the pursuit of happiness we sure get our underwear in a bunch when a young person does something that makes them happy (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I certainly will agree with you there. And I, I will take 30 seconds before we close this, this episode to um, one of the, the perspectives that I, that I saw um, on Twitter was from Doug Gottlieb. I don't know, Joe, if you had a chance to see this. And I, I think oh this my, is. I did. And I, I just want to smack him anyway. I, I think that pissed, that, that pissed me off. But yeah. This is a combination of, you know, being arrogant and also being ignorant. And when I say ignorant, I mean it in the true sense of the word of not having knowledge of <clears throat> uh, what you're talking about. His, his direct quote, this was a conversation between he and uh, noted commentator Roland Martin. Uh, Roland Martin said, uh, responded to Doug Gottlieb. Doug Gottlieb's initial tweet was, Twitter celebrating a kid making an obvious mistake is hilarious. Roland Martin said, he, uh, you know, essentially he, uh, so he thinks Travis Hunter's making a mistake by heading to an HBCU. Here to explain why going to an 11-1 team is uh, why going why going to an 11-1 team is and not a five and seven team is a mistake. Doug Gottlieb's response: 
HBCU football doesn't have close to the same support athletically, academically, medically, and they play an inferior schedule with inferior teammates. I'm I'm addition. Uh, I think you meant in addition. Okay, in addition of football ends, any person would prefer to be a UGA. Georgia, Florida State, Texas A&M alum for help in the workforce. There's so much there that, again, we need an entire episode to break that down. Um, the support academically, that's just stupid and asinine. Um, I have what about HBCUs automatically means that they are less than academically. Um, and, and, whether, and whether he's talking about the school at the school's academics or support to help students' academics, it, it's still stupid. I mean, HBCU football uh, survived, <laughs> and they, they're able to produce many alums who go on to do great things, just not in professional sports. But the part that really you know stuck with me is any person would prefer to be a Georgia, Florida State, Texas A&M alum for help in the workforce. I'm not going to turn this into a sociology program, Joe, but I'll say this. Um, <laughs> uh, that's just not how networking works. Uh, <laughs> um, to, to, to Joe, I'm trying to talk around about put you like this. I'm very proud to be an alum of the University of Central Florida. Uh, I've met plenty of alum across the country, but um, people tend to hire who they know and who look like them, and uh that tends to cut across the uh, lines of your uh, university. And I know I've been someone who's been helped uh, in getting jobs, <laughs> including, you know, in many various jobs uh, by HBCU alum, despite having never gone, having never gone to an HBCU. So uh, I'll just leave it at that. Anyone else who wants to dig further, they can. But it, it's just, it shows that Doug Gottlieb, you know, never took one sociology course during his time at uh, Oklahoma State slash Notre Dame. All right. Three quick points on this. One, that take by Doug Gottlieb, obviously moronic. <laughs> and I, just, I, I'm baffled. He was like, I'm going to put this online for the whole world to see. And it's a, it's just a stupid, arguably pretty, <laughs> I mean, I'll, I have to stop myself from swearing. I'm so pissed about this. It's a pretty ch- just stupid racist take, honestly. Um, and B, <laughs> Doug Gottlieb is really going to talk about young people making stupid decisions, really. When <laughs> I, was, I wasn't even going to go there, Joe, but you have at it. No, it, it, screw that. Like, like this is the guy who was charged with credit card fraud coming out of high school. So, like, are you seriously going to sit here and, like, opine about young people making, you know, good decisions for their future when, like, you were literally committing crimes coming out of high school? And also, see, are you seriously going to talk about some of these blue blood football powerhouses being these, you know, academic institutions you think they are. Ohio State was giving leadership classes from Urban Meyer. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? Oh, that pisses me off. So, yeah, uh, plenty of uh, takes and some clearly not that smart regarding this situation. So, as you mentioned, Joe, people tend to get all up in arms when kids tend to buck the system. Also, Washington State was giving like guerrilla warfare classes from Mike GD Leach. What the, just because your school is good at football doesn't mean it's a good academic school. And correct. There, there are so many, uh, there's just so many things wrong with the people criticizing this decision. And again, it's too early to tell how Travis Hunter will make, well, you know, we'll, we'll seize this opportunity, but to sit here now and say, it's a huge mistake. Shut up, shut up. Um, 
all right do we do we have anything else we want to end unless we're just ending it with me calling doug gottlieb an ass i I think that works for me (laughs) okay fair enough uh thank you all so much for listening uh to the conference usa edition of the underdog podcast obviously sometimes we talk about stuff outside of conference usa uh but you know if you guys keep listening we'll keep doing it um if you want to follow us on twitter at underdog dynasty as well as our personal Twitters at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore and at Eric C. Henry underscore. And, uh, of course, uh, we got a ton of bowl content, a ton of National Signing Day content coming out. If you want to check that out, uh, underdogdynasty.com every day. And, uh, Eric, our team is is hard at work. I know I haven't uh, been sleeping much <laughs> the last couple of days since we looked at the bowl schedule. But, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to keep doing it, and hopefully pe- people keep uh, coming back and downloading and checking it out. Couldn't agree with you more, buddy. All right. Happy football watching, everybody. We'll talk to you real soon. 